earthly inheritance, no, um, no job, no amount of money, um, our health. Nothing compares to the promise that we have of eternal life in you. And we praise you for that. And Lord, we worship you. We want to give you all of ourselves because nothing does compare to you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning a series of messages this morning out of the book of Ephesians entitled, You've Got Mail. For those of you that are parents of small children every week, because uh, the children right now are studying the book of Ephesians as well. So every week you're going to be getting a small packet that, that covers what we're covering in here. So this morning we're talking about Ephesians chapter 1. When you go to children's ministry area, you're going to get a packet that will help your children discover and you discover some things in Ephesians chapter 1. Because remember, as moms and dads, we are primarily responsible for the spiritual growth and health of our children. So that's something we can do together. As you study the book of Ephesians, um, your children study the book of Ephesians, together we can learn. You know, as I was thinking about this morning, I thought I should maybe entitle this message called The Chosen One. Now, for many of you that are sports fanatics, when I say The Chosen One, what do you think of? LeBron. You know, the guy that's probably going to disappoint us. You know, I read this week that, I'm not not sure what the percentage is, but many people that they have more, they value themselves more highly, or they think more highly of themselves when their sports team won that week or that evening. And so if the Cavs win, I feel better about myself. Now, if you live in Cleveland or in Northeast Ohio, we think badly about ourselves all the time. That is, if our dependence is upon LeBron, if we look at LeBron as the chosen one, or we realize that we are the chosen ones. You know, LeBron, they say, has the chosen one tattooed on his back. But we have the chosen one written on our hearts. Because we are chosen, and Ephesians addresses that that very thing. A little bit of an introduction of the book of Ephesians. You know, the Apostle Paul is the author of Ephesians. Paul wrote much of the New Testament. So he's the one that wrote uh, the book of Ephesians. Who is the audience? The audience is the church at Ephesus, but it is also... This letter is for you and I. That's why it's called You've Got Mail, because this letter is for you. And and most people believe that this letter was intended to be circulated through the churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus is located in in modern-day Turkey. Paul was writing this letter from a Roman prison. And I wonder, as you read through this book, could I have as good of an attitude and write with the attitude that Paul wrote if I were in prison? And I think probably the prison in Rome, they didn't have cable TV and they didn't have all the luxuries that today's prisons have. So Paul was writing from this dungeon in Rome. And that's, by the way, is why this is called one of the prison epistles, because it was written from a prison. 
is written in about, probably about 61 AD. And like I said, this, this, this book was intended to be passed around to churches in the surrounding areas. And Ephesus was one of the great cities of that part of the world at that time. It was a Roman capital, it was a wealthy commercial center, and a home for the worship of the goddess Diana. And if you look up here at this picture, Levi, if you want to forward that real quick, up in the right-hand corner is a, a statue of the goddess Diana. In the center, that is the temple of Artemis. That is where many of the people in Ephesus went to worship during this time. And the others are just some ruins of Ephesus. But Ephesus was it was a very wicked city and, and idol worship was at the center of it. And you can read actually about about the church in Ephesus and the, um, about Ephesus itself in, in Acts chapters 18 and 19 where it talks about Paul's time. Paul was there on two different occasions ministering to the people in Ephesus. But Ephesus I believe was probably a very discouraging place. Uh, an easy place to fall away from the faith because of all of this outside influence that that the, that the church was just having just every day was bombarded with and was probably easy for them to to lose their passion and their focus because of what was around them but one historian says that the letter to, to the Ephesians was written to encourage the Gentile Christians to appreciate the dignity of their calling with its implications not only on their heavenly origin and destiny, but also their present conduct on earth and those who were heirs of God sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me, let me just say, the book of Ephesians, when you look at it, has bear, is made up of basically two parts. The first three chapters talk about doctrine. And now I know that when, when you sit and you listen a teaching about doctrine, you, you, when you hear me say doctrine, you're like, oh, this, it, can, it can seem to be long. But this is critical in our Christian faith to understand doctrine. So Paul, the first three chapters, he talks about doctrine. And then the last three chapters, he talks about, about duty, what our duty is. You know, in the first three chapters, we hear about doctrine. Then in verse, in chapter 4, when he begins to change, he says, As a prisoner of the Lord, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. Some translators say, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord. In other words, because of what happened here, this is now how you should act. So you're going to find as you're going through this book, first three chapters are going to talk about doctrine. The last three are going to talk about, as a result of this doctrine, this is now how I should act. And so our doctrine is critical. What is doctrine? I've been trying to figure out in my head how to, to in one sentence, explain to you what doctrine is. Here is uh, the best shot that I read from somebody else. But let me explain. It says, doctrine is truth revealed from Scripture regarding God, his ways, and his purpose. Doctrine is what the Scriptures tell us about God and the things of God. So, see, what doctrine is, is, let's use the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. You know, there's no one place. Actually, Trinity is never mentioned in the Scriptures. 
But what happens is, is we do a study and we find all of the places where it talks about God the Father, where it talks about God the Son, and where it talks about God the Spirit. And from that, we compile our stance on the Trinity. That is doctrine. It's, it's taking all of the Scripture, studying it, and then, then, then putting it in a way that we can understand. I hope I haven't confused you more than, but doctrine is just our practices. So it's important to understand Scripture. Because really, when you think about it, what we believe about God is the way we act. This morning we had a conversation about that. What we believe about God is the way that we act. And the way that we act is a result of what we believe about God. So what comes out of my mouth, the Bible says, is out of the heart that the mouth speaks, really says a lot about what I believe about God. The way I conduct my life says a lot about what I believe about God. See, we must be rooted in God's word if we expect to be fruitful. And Paul begins this book of Ephesians by giving us, by by grounding us, by helping us to put our roots down. And remember, we began this year, uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the mockers, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's where he gets his doctrine. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What is He's like that tree, and that tree has to be rooted. And once that tree is rooted, it automatically, once it's rooted and grounded and it's being fed, it will produce fruit. So if you're not producing fruit, it's more about the fact that you're not rooted in God's word. Because if we're rooted in God's word, we automatically will produce fruit. And so that's why doctrine is so critical. It's because it makes us who we are. Now, back in the late 1800s, there was a woman named Hetty Green. And she was known as the Wall Street Witch. Wouldn't you love to have that as your nickname? But Hetty Green was, um, she was so tight with her money that she ate her oatmeal cold because um, the only place that she would heat it would be um, on her, like her radiator in her house. And so, because it would cost too much to heat it, she didn't heat water because it cost her too much. Um, She had one dress and one pair of underwear. And she, when she, the only time she changed it was when it wore out. Sounds maybe like she's in junior high or something. Just kidding, junior hires. I'm so sorry. I know you guys, never mind. I will go on. I'm sorry. I should not have said that. Oh, me and Keith have been compiling a book of, uh, of quotes of what not to say. That one probably fits in there. But she was a tightwad. I mean, she, she was so stingy that her son one time broke his leg, and she took him to a free clinic, and they figured out who she was. And she, so she, they wouldn't treat him be, um, at this free clinic because it was for underprivileged families. So she took her son home, decided she would fix it herself, and in the process, he got gangrene in his foot and ended up having to have his leg amputated because she was too tight. Now, the sad thing is Hetty Green, when she died, she, had, she left an estate of approximately $200 million, 
which today is equivalent to about five or six billion dollars. But Hetty Green lived a life of misery and bondage. And, you know, she is the illustration of a lot of, of, of Christians today. We have unlimited wealth at our disposal, and yet we live as misers. You know, lives, we live lives that reflect, we should live lives that reflect incredible wealth because that's what we have in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what the book of Ephesians, that's what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Ephesus. He's trying to to show them and remind them of the great wealth that they have in their relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. After the salutation, and in verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the ones he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with his riches in God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his call of of his will according to his good pleasure and his purpose in Christ to be in a, to to be put into effect when the times will reach their fullness and to bring all things in heaven and the earth together under one head even Christ and says in him we were chosen remember we are the chosen ones having been predestined according to his plan who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians, here, there are three areas we want to address. You know, we have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And when you look at this, this, that's why we have this great riches I mean, we of all people are, are so blessed because we have an eternal perspective. So Paul reminds them of this great blessing that they have received in Christ. And it's not only a blessing for here, for today, it's not only an earthly blessing, but it is an eternal blessing because, you see, we have dual citizenship. We have citizenship here on earth, and while we're here, that's where we'll be. But because I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior, I also have a heavenly citizenship. And in Christ, my heavenly citizenship is much more important than my earthly citizenship. Because remember, we are what? Aliens and strangers on this earth. We are citizens eternally of heaven. You know, Colossians 3, verse 1, it says, Since then we have been raised with Christ. 
Set your hearts on what? Things above, on the heavenly things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, I have been chosen. I've been chosen by the Father. The Bible says, before time began, did you know that he had you in mind? I mean, think about that. Before the earth was formed, before Adam and Eve were created, before the garden was created, he had chosen you. Now, there are people that believe, you know, there are these two, there are these two beliefs that the greatest probably um, debate in Christianity is, is, is the whole thing of Calvinism and Arminianism. You know, the belief that, that, that the Calvinist believes that, that certain people have been predestined to go to hell, to God's glory, and certain people have been predestined to go to heaven. And I've wrestled with this thing, and, and, and Arminians believe that, that, that God doesn't completely know everything. He isn't all-knowing. And somewhere in the middle, we have to wrestle with what is truth. And I believe as I have wrestled with that, that truth is somewhere in the middle. And it is, it is, a, it is a challenging thing to process, but we have to think about this. You know, because this word predestination comes in, what does that mean? So we wrestle with that. And, and there will, we will never come to a conclusion because there are very there are there are people on both sides that are very wise that would that take scripture and debate it, but I believe that God chose us before the creation of the world. I believe He chose all people because the Bible says that He is not willing that any perish. Some choose to follow, some choose not to, and God, in His perfect knowledge, knows that and knows who. So we have been chosen by the Father. Because before the creation of the world, he determined what he wanted to do with us. Or that he wanted us to be with him. He's chosen us to be holy and blameless. But it is only in Christ, as verse 4, it is only in Christ that we can realize perfection in his sight. See, even though I am sinful... I am depraved. I am rebellious. He finds pleasure in adopting me as his child. It takes, ple- it takes pleasure in us. And Ephesians 1, 5 in the New Living Translation says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It gave God great pleasure to choose me before the creation of the world. I am a chosen one. You are a chosen one. And God desires this for every person. In 1 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some have understood slowness. He is patient, not wanting any to perish. Not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And 1 Timothy says, This is God's, this is good and pleases our, our, 
God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved. See, and so that goes against what the hyper-Calvinist believes when he says some are predestined to go to hell and some are predestined to go to heaven. My Bible tells me that he desires all, everyone, to spend eternity with him. But some people choose to, some people choose not to. And there's no verse in the Bible that, that teaches us that some are foreordained to everlasting punishment. So we've been chosen by the Father before the creation of time. We have been redeemed by the Son, Jesus Christ. It says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Think about that. In Him... We have redemption. Now, that word redemption means to release or set free. And what the idea was here that Paul was writing to, there are three different ways that redemption is used, was used back in the time of Paul. The one here is talking about if you were to go into the slave market where they were, were selling slaves, where they did it on a daily basis, you would go in and you would purchase this slave with your money, you would take him out of that market and you would release him from that bondage that he is in and you would let him go free. That is the type of redemption. That is what this word is talking about. You see, Jesus Christ, by paying for, for with his life, by giving his blood for me who was in the bondage, in the slavery of sin... He paid the price for me and allowed me to walk in freedom. That is what that word redemption means. So so I have been redeemed by the Son. I have been set free. And Paul tells the Ephesian church, you know, you are the chosen ones. This is good news. You have been redeemed. You've been set free from that life that you once lived. And you are now free to live a new life in Jesus Christ. He paid the ultimate price for us. He gave his he gave his own blood for me. It cost Christ his blood to buy back to buy me back from this slave market of sin that I am in. I've been what? By the Father chosen. I've been redeemed by the Son. And now the third place that Paul talks to the, to the church at Ephesus is he tells them, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's lots of debate that goes on about this verse, these verses as well. What does sealed mean? Does that mean you are eternally secure? What does it mean? First of all, one thing we have to understand. You would not be a follower of Christ had not the Holy Spirit at some point drawn you or given you the desire to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. So there was a point in your life when you, if you are a believer, if you're sitting here this morning, you've accepted Jesus Christ. There was a point in your life when, when the Holy Spirit prompted you, knocked on the door of your heart and convicted you of your sin. And at that point... You gave yourself, you gave your life to Jesus Christ. He came in and he cleansed you. And here in Ephesians says that, that he not only cleansed, it says 
in verse 13, it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. See, there was a point in our lives when I heard the word of truth, And I had to respond to that. Now, some of you may be sitting here this morning and you have heard the word of truth. You've been convicted by it. And yet you have chosen at this point to reject his word, to reject Jesus Christ. But he says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, he says, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise and to the glory. You see, the Holy Spirit serves as a guarantee or a deposit of our inheritance and a seal as a mark of authenticity or genuineness. Now, stick with me here, please, because this is something we need to understand that you need to wrestle with, and that you need to go back and study. You need to go back and look at Ephesians 1 this week and read that and, and, and find some good commentary to, to, to wrestle with this. You see, the, the, the distinguishing mark, the difference between believers, people who have Jesus Christ in their hearts, and people who have him in their head, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that seal is the mark of ownership that is placed on us. The Holy Spirit is on the earth as God's deposit or guarantee for something that is coming yet. He is the deposit or the guarantee until Jesus Christ comes back to receive us unto himself to spend eternity with him in heaven. The the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of a finished transaction, a safe delivery of the spirit, soul, and body into heaven, our future inheritance into glory. And that that future inheritance is guaranteed through the sealing of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also tells us that that sealing, and I'll be really careful how I say this, because there are some of you that are sitting out there that you believe that you are eternally secure. And there are those that believe that that once you accept Christ, that you can never, ever walk away from him. That 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 your salvation is guaranteed no matter how awful your life is, you are sealed. I don't believe that's true. I believe that when you trample on the blood of Jesus Christ, when you walk away from Jesus Christ and you deny him, even if you have said you accepted Christ, your salvation is lost. And some of you may cringe when I say that. But Hebrews 10, 29. You see, I believe when we, when we grieve or insult the Holy Spirit, it can be taken away. Hebrews 10, 29. And I'd like for you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles. Hebrews 10, 29. Here's what it says. Think how much more terrible the punishment will be for those who have have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant as if it were common and unholy. Such people have insulted and enraged the Holy Spirit who brings mercy to his people. So I believe there comes a point where we can walk away from Jesus Christ and walk away from our salvation. Nobody can ever take that from me, but I believe I can give it away. 
And there, there, I know there, there are some of you, there are those that would believe that if you walk away, you probably never have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that's why, so you don't lose it, you just never really received it. But my contention always is, you know, whether you walked away from Jesus Christ or whether you never were truly saved, your destination is the same, and that is hell. But I believe that once I accept Jesus Christ and I walk with him, I am sealed. And that is my guarantee of something far greater. And that is eternity with Jesus Christ in heaven. So I am, I am sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am marked by him. I am a chosen one. I've been chosen by my heavenly father before the beginning of time. I was redeemed by my savior, Jesus Christ. When I asked him into my heart and when I asked him into my heart, I was sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now indwells me. The Holy Spirit now empowers me. The Holy Spirit prompts me. The Holy Spirit gives me joy. And sustains me. And it gives me the power to go on in my faith in Jesus Christ. And to live a life, as we'll see in chapter 4, to live a life worthy of that calling that I have. So don't be a heady. Don't live in misery and bondage. Live a life that reflects your incredible wealth as the chosen one. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. You know, Paul then, after he's explained to the the church in Ephesus this incredible gift that they have, he prays a prayer over them. And this is this is one of one of the beautiful prayers, I think, in Scripture. And you'll find a couple of you'll find that Paul in a couple of different occasions here in Ephesians, because over in chapter two, then he he prays again and he writes out his prayer. And so this morning I'd like to end our time with just praying this prayer that Paul prayed over the Ephesian church, over us as the body at Fairland. So if you would stand with me. Um, and we're gonna, I want to pray this prayer with you. This is what Paul says in verse 15. He says, For this reason that he just stated, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you in my prayer. I keep asking that the God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, May give you the spirit, and this is, and now he starts his prayer, and this is how we want to pray. And I pray, and we pray together, that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you, Pharaoh, may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your hearts, Pharaoh, may be enlightened, and in order that you may know the hope that you have been called the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those of us at Fairlawn who believe. The power that is, is like the working of his mighty strength, which has, he has exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand 
in the heavenly realms, far above all rulers and authorities, powers and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything and in every way. And Father, I pray, Lord, this just that that would be, the, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see how wonderful you are, that you would open our eyes to help us to understand that we are chosen ones, that we were chosen before the beginning of time, that, that we were redeemed by, by our, our loving Savior, and that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Father, as we study your word together, Lord, may we engage one another in conversation. Lord, may we agree to disagree on certain things, but Lord, stand firm in our doctrine and know what truth is. And may that truth inspire us to live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have received. And now, Father, as we separate from here, Lord, I pray for all of our uh, men and women that are out um, serving in, in other places in this world. Lord, I pray for the Kenya team, Lord, that you would sustain them, Lord, that you would empower them um, to, to preach your word. Lord, that you would keep them safe, but Lord, that they would see you. I pray, Lord, for the, for the Ecuador team as they wrap up their time in Ecuador. Lord, that, that you would bless them. Lord, that you would um, just help them to minister to the children down there. Lord, help them to come back with revived and renewed spirits. And Lord, for our young people who are in Phoenix, Arizona, beginning their, their, um, their journey this week, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to them. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, you would, you would show them, Lord, uh, just the desires that you have for their lives. Lord, that, that, that through, um, through you, Lord, that they would, um, they would minister to the, the children of inner city Phoenix, but also, Lord, that, that you would uh, speak to them. Lord, that they would be changed and renewed. And Lord, for us as we go out, Lord, we have a huge mission field. Lord, I pray that we would, um, Lord, live as chosen ones, live life, victorious lives, lives of joy, and, and, and be courageous in everything that we do and in everything that we say. And, Lord, that we would bring you honor and glory. We pray those things in, in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.